0: The theme for this evening's talk is Uh, not here, nor there, nor in between. (laughs) Uh, uh, Just before uh, uh, coming uh, into the hall, I was walking down to the uh, uh, kitchen there and back and I found myself just reflecting Uh, a little bit on uh, Mother India and a conversation that uh, took place today at uh, lunchtime with regard uh, to uh, India. And I suspect that what uh, stimulated the reflection was uh, at the time I began the reflection, I was uh, drinking a a cup of uh, Bengal spice T there in this, so there's even a possibility that this talk will come from that (laughs) cellular level. (laughs) So, uh, Shadra and I were speaking with uh, a few people uh, uh, at the staff at the kitchen uh, table, and we were referring, in fact, to uh, the retreat which took place. Last uh, January, and in terms of there uh, the uh, visit uh, to uh, in India, if I just take a little bit, uh, moment or two, uh, we have been retreat, uh, leading retreats in Bodhgaya, the place of the Buddha's enlightenment for uh, uh, many years first time was 23 years ago, and Shada and I have been uh, teaching there together for uh, the last uh, 13 years. And it brings uh, a wide uh, diversity of uh, people from um, all over the world, and it's a a privilege and a delight to uh, participate and uh, serve in such an atmosphere. And the average age uh, probably people probably in their mid-twenties, since many, of course, are on the road and are creating and making some time in their uh, life for that. And there were two people uh, on the on the retreat. And one uh, a person was uh, 83 years of age. And in an inquiry, I uh, encouraged him to... Uh, tell us uh, something of his story. And it uh, turned out that he was born with, if I remember rightly, a German uh, mother and a father from uh, 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 South America had spent some time uh, in South America, returned to Germany, but um, also spoke uh, Norwegian uh, fluently. And he said in his, uh, during the 1930s he absolutely hated uh, Nazi Germany and uh, fled it several times to uh, be able to avoid being called up into the army. But he was uh, caught the last time in Turkey and pulled back at the end of the 1930s to uh, Nazi Germany and was put into uh, uniform and then sent to Norway and where he worked for the German occupation army as a translator. And while doing that, he also worked for the Norwegian underground and passing to them as much information as possible to cause as much uh, uh, difficulty... Um, problems for the occupying army. And I said to him, you know, what was it like doing that? And he said, well, it was extremely difficult because the SS and the Gestapo were looking for the person in the building who was passing on information (laughs) in the military headquarters in Oslo. They knew someone was doing it and they didn't know who, and they said when they got the person... They would skin them alive. So he lived with this day in and day out, still passing on the information to the Norwegian underground. And through the doing, uh, through this, he knew that they were getting closer and closer. And of course he was an obvious target because he, he was the translator. So the Norwegians... Uh, advised him to get out as uh, quickly as possible, and he spent the rest of the war um, in safe houses, being moved from one to another until the war was over. So I, and of course many others, uh, had exactly the same uh, thought. How could you live with that day in and day out? How could you live with that intensity and and that pressure and that uncertainty there. And he said the only thing which kept him going day by day, hour by hour, and through the nights when he couldn't sleep because of his body shaking, was the conviction that what he would had to do was necessary. It was an inner conviction. He said he knew the, the, uh, uh, what the Nazi regime uh, was. He believed in what the Norwegians' rights of the uh, Norwegians, and he said that kept him through it. He, after the war, rather don't mind me going on with this uh, story, but um, after the after the war, he went to India, and then up to Nepal, and became a Buddhist monk for the next eighteen years. He then disrobed as a Buddhist monk and married a Buddhist nun. And then went back, and in Europe, he gave some two thousand lectures on Buddhism. But he said I couldn't speak about practice; I didn't feel the authority. <laughs> so he said I just would speak about uh, Buddhist culture, Buddhist religion, then try get a little bit in about the Four Noble Truths, and and then he from there he became um, an artist, and then came back to uh, India. And I said to him, what are you going to do from now, from here, when you leave here? This member, a man, 82, 83 years of age. He said, well, I'm going back up uh, to Nepal because um, there are some mountains I want to climb. (laughs) So there's a hall of, you know, 150 people, 25 to 30 year olds, the vast majority uh, of of them. And uh, listening to... Uh, one remarkable uh, life history and the warmth and the uh, connection and the inspiration and and adventure so strong in this man and it just hadn't wavered throughout uh, all, all of these years. And I think sometimes in relationship uh, to that, it's a wonderful example, I think, an illustration of what, an expression of many, of course, of what inner freedom is and not being fixed, neither here nor there nor in between, and still having that uh, uh, spirit of uh, exploration and ad- adventure. And, and his wife's still, still married. She's in her early 80s, and uh, he said, She's oh, all right. She's in Norway. No problem. And uh, so we left him to climb the mountains and then re- return home to his uh, uh, good, good wife in uh, Norway. On another uh, inquiry uh, uh, there, different kind of story, but a long uh, one of a man aged uh, 72, and he, ca- and he was blind, totally blind. And I asked him, I said, please come, and uh, the, uh, the retreatants, one person per day, uh, giving him support. And he came and uh, sat at the front, and I said, why did you lose your eyesight? And he said, during the Second World War, he was a 19-year-old soldier, and he said, one of your fellow countrymen threw an hand grenade at me, and it bounced in front of me, exploded, and the metal took both eyes completely out. And I haven't seen anything since. And he said, that was because I was in Hitler's army. So, of course, many people from neighbouring countries of, uh, of the Germany of that era. Of course, many uh, Israelis uh, as well, but also a very painful uh, history of that period as well. And when he said, and I was in Hitler's army, I just felt there was a kind of upright movement of the body. I wasn't quite sure if they were standing to attention, but at least there was a... Uh, there. And a genuine wish to hear what this man had to say. And the essence of what he had to say was that simply he was a 19-year-old, and what he was told to do, like the previous per, uh, person, the elderly other elderly uh, gentleman, was put on your uniform, here is your rifle, here is 16 week, six weeks training was what they got, go to the front line and kill. That was, that was all and the world of politics and everything else that was going on, he said, we were just told to do this. And that's all, and it wasn't really till later that we really realised what we were doing and, uh, and all that went with it. And therefore he said, we still, we Germans, still have a lot to live with. We still have a lot to be aware of. We still have a lot of forgiveness to, to make for what was caused. After the war, he became a, a union psychotherapist. And I thought, what courage and spirit to actually leave the, 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 the safety of a Western society with all of its benefits and make a journey to India. And there are no eyes in there. I said, what's it like when you no no eyes at all? I said, is it black? He says, no, it's not black. He said, it's, it's all different colors. He said, I wish it was black, but it's in fact all different colors are Uh, are going on uh, inside the brain. And he said, rather touchingly, he said, it's rather ironic, and it touched my heart, he said, it's rather ironic that it was a 19-year-old, as a 19-year-old, it was an Englishman who threw the hand grenade and took my eyes out, and now I am a 72-year-old and it's an Englishman who is helping me to see <sighs> that that just puh, took my breath, took my breath. Relate all of this to the uh, uh, events of life in which sometimes in our meditations, in our sittings, in our being here, here together, we, we do know so little about each other. We know very little about our background, our history, who we are, and what we 've done, and all the, the the stories and the range and variety of them which make up our life and and uh, and express in our personality various ways of of who we are and sometimes naturally and rather importantly it's extraordinarily helpful and beneficial to know each other and to relate to each other but We begin to sense and feel, and perhaps over the days here as well, that in the silence and in the stillness that takes place, we also get to know each other, but it's in a different kind of way. There's a different kind of sense uh, which comes through and can come through very well and very clearly of knowing each other without having to know the history, without having to know the story, which may be helpful and shed light on on each other. And something quite wonderful in silence and stillness provides the opportunity for connecting, being with, and uh, warming to and being receptive to, yet we know nothing about the person. Nothing about the person. So there seems to be some area of commonality which can be discovered and sensed in which the labels that we have, I am a, and then we might put our work label on it, we might put our role on it, we might put our nationality on it or whatsoever, and that the I am a, that, that seems to be less relevant, less important. But I do think there is a genuine, deeper communication that takes place which, as it were, so to speak, gets under gets behind the I am A. Even though much of our sense and knowledge of who we are is definitely connected and wrapped up with I am A, and then we put on it various words, labels, descriptions, uh, states of mind, or whatever we associate there. And sometimes we look, we look to each other, look to ourselves and sometimes we, in our looking we see, well that doesn't seem to matter that much somehow it's not that significant and in that there's a certain kind of in a lovely way, in a a sweet and precious way, kind of seeing through to the authentic human being so it's not surprising regularly in India, and uh, the question uh, arises, one of the deep questions of uh, life, and there was some reflection with that in one of the inquiries earlier during the week, and it's, who am I before the thought arises in my mind? Who am I prior to the thought arising of who I am? And as I say, sometimes in the silence and in the stillnesses of of things, that sense of before the personality, before the movement, before the history, before the storyline, before the descriptions, sometimes there's a sense of that, and the sense of that with another actually feels extraordinarily familiar. And so when sometimes the saints and the sages... have have said with great conviction and great determination, all that I see in terms of others is none other than myself with a different name and form. All that I see is none other than myself with a different name and form. And sometimes even the name's the same. Some of you have been. To, some of you have been to India, and um, <laughs> we had one person on a retreat about a decade ago from uh, from Calif- California. And wherever he went, he kept hearing his name being called. As soon as he arrived in Delhi, and uh, in Varanasi, and everywhere, and kept on hearing his name and he couldn't, couldn't believe it he said with a, a smile and they kept on shouting out to him hey rickshaw rickshaw <laughs> anyway that's a distraction anyway <laughs> <laughs> so in the <laughs> See, if it happens if you make a one line you forget what the thread of the talk is so it ends up not being here, nor there, nor in between. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think probably Jack was right. He once said, he once said to me, he said, uh, the beginnings of your talks are very good, and the ends of them are very good, and it's a pity about the middle. Uh. LAUGHTER so sometimes in the movement of the inner life and its manifestation uh, uh, there we've talked uh, over uh, the days here together that sometimes it focuses and by necessity it focuses and it takes up things to focus upon and uh, life is uh, a manifestation and uh, expression and demonstration of various aspects which we focus upon. And so in the focusing upon, it establishes a relationship, and the relationship is I as the subject, and that which I focus upon, called the object. Object may may be uh, the thoughts arising and passing, the states of mind, uh, other people, places, environments, past, present and future, or whatever. So all that we focus upon is some aspect, some feature in time. You think of anything which you're interested in, concern. it would be around the present, or around the past, or around the future, uh, around uh, an issue or a concern, a theoretical one, or uh, an emotional one, or whatever. So you say, here I am, and from the inner life there is, I arise, the subject arises, and I turn my attention to the object. And my life is therefore this ongoing activity of the relationship of the subject to the object. And then I reach the end of the day and I'm naturally glad, relieved, content when this world which has arisen during the day called subject and object, me and what's around me, me and what I'm connected with, goes And if it doesn't go at the end of the day, one gets rather restless and agitated and and the thoughts arise, why am I still thinking about what went on today or what I have to do tomorrow or uh, something in, in the past? So every single day of our life, there is a genuine and authentic interest in actually seeing the end of self and what it's involved in and we get rather restless and uptight if we can't see the end of self at the end of the day and what it's involved in. And so we're very appreciative of going and having a uh, uh, deep sleep, and then we uh, awake the following uh, day, and then the world comes of oneself living in the world with things to do, and we say, ah, this is life. And so far, my only taste of non-duality seems to be in uh, deep sleep. And, <laughs> um, and uh, the duality of life seems to keep recurring itself uh, again and again. So we, during our days, our time, we've been looking at what is this subject-object relationship in which we as a subject affect what we attend to, and that which is the object affects that which is attending to it. And that dynamic has obviously been going on between us in multiple ways, and we get used to the view of it. And so sometimes, uh, in that, I'll quote the passage a bit more in a moment or two, it seems sometimes we're focused on the condition of the subject, the experiencer, the, the thinker the watcher, the observer, the participator, the one who is involved. Sometimes we are focusing on that and sometimes we are focusing on what's relating to it, what's connecting with it. So it seems to be, we seem to find ourselves either here with the self or there, things going on in life, or uh, somewhere in between. And sometimes, of course, obviously, not knowing where the hell we are, and going um, backwards and forwards with far more effectiveness than those yo-yos that the children use. So this movement, self to object, object on self, and the extraordinary thing is in the movement backwards and forwards uh, between this, that how, not random, but how the conditions seem to affect that. So sometimes... We seem so completely identified with what we attend to, completely identified uh, with it, and therefore, in terms sometimes of bodily life or whatever, or our states of mind or our conditions, and sometimes it seems that we also can stand back, and the self can attend to. And sometimes we are so close to things that we can't. See clearly, and the obvious uh, simple illustration uh, of that is just by putting you know, what the hell can one see when one's got one's hand so close to one's palm of one hand so close to the face? There's no space around it, it blocks everything out, and we kind of get stuck in that closeness which is taking place. And so, we learn to be steady and still, to be a little bit more aware have a little bit more space around the extended arm, the palm, ah, there it is, and we can see it much more clearly in its general and in its detail. Why? There's awareness with some space around the situation to see clearly. And this importance of this, through each and every one of the meditations, we've been reminding ourselves. Yet, in that, whether sometimes here or there or in between, Sometimes it's quite appropriate and vital, in fact, to be quite absorbed in that which we attend to. And therefore, it isn't that we have to stand back. And so, for example, in, in creativity, wouldn't be any good standing back uh, there. One is deeply absorbed in the moment of creation, of the creativity. Sometimes when we are writing, sometimes when we're having an intimate Conversation, where uh, we're working at the desk or whatever. There are plenty of areas in life where it requires not the standing back to be with, but the clear absorption with, and sometimes we feel very absorbed in what we're doing, assuming there's an ethic there, assuming that it's skillful, assuming that it's not causing harm or whatever. So here's a life which we sometimes stand back, therefore more emphasis on the awareness of object. And sometimes, quite appropriately, being quite absorbed with the uh, object and it having uh, an authentic, beneficial sense and feeling. And sometimes you and I... Know that when we're absorbed in something which we know is beneficial and healthy and wise and skillful, how nourishing it is for the heart and the feelings and the awarenesses to be deeply absorbed. So the Dharma has, uh, and, the, and the teachings, have encouraged deep absorption. Said it's extraordinarily beneficial for heart, body and mind, called the, the jhanas. There and there are more and more people in practices who are using the jhanas for anchoring that deeper sense of well-being, and the wonderful and marvelous practice it is as well. So you say, so here is am I? Here is the object. Sometimes wisely absorbed in the object, sometimes identifying and clinging to it with all the uh, fraughtness of pain and suffering as a consequence. Sometimes stepping back and that awareness uh, of stepping back, but if the stepping back is pulling back, we don't realize we can actually, with mindfulness and with observation, pull back that it actually creates a strain and a kind of alienation, and one is just a kind of aloof observer, a detached observer. And one of the factors that when that happens, in that kind of detached observer mode, that one of the outcomes of that is that feelings begin to go cold. There's some loss of some uh, essential inner human warmth. It's a sure sign that it's awareness and it's observation, but a pulling back from connection. And so sometimes we, uh, you know, meet people, and they seem to be very strong, and very uh, steady, and very purposeful, and uh, very uh, detached, or whatever it might be. But there could be sometimes some discomfort. And discomfort. It seems like that the the observer, the witness, the experiencer has has a a detachment from. And in that, something seems to make the feelings more dry or or cooler or or whatever it it might be. And it's therefore important for us to look at that because that is a concern in uh, insight meditation uh, there. And the thought may arise. But don't some people teach... Doesn't the Buddha teach detachment... Oddly enough, he's never used the word. Not only it, is it that he doesn't teach it, it doesn't even appear in the text. Someone says, well, how on earth? You know, people think of um, uh, Buddhism. Isn't it the religion of um, total detachment uh, f- uh, from, from the world? From the world. When the, the Pope he, uh, in the Vatican, uh, two or three years ago, uh, he he wrote a book. I mean, we assume he wrote the book, and <laughs> and the title of it was called "Crossing the Threshold of Hope," and it sold more than around the world in many many languages, uh, more than twenty-two million copies, and beautifully done, beautifully published, beautifully presented beautifully marketed and hopelessly (laughs) written and um, I bought a a copy uh, of it, it wasn't one of my better investments (laughs) (laughs) and the statement of the Pope on the teachings of the Buddha uh, that the the final aim of Buddhist practice is to reach the state of total indifference. (laughs) (laughs) And then the poor man was due to go on a trip to Sri Lanka. It was not good advice. So it got some modification. So sometimes one hears this, oh, detachment, indifference, this is, this is what Buddhism, Buddha, Buddha's teachings are, are about. The word it's important. The word is viraga, V-I-R-A-G-A. Raga means nothing to do with lovely Indian music. Raga is lusting after. Lusting after whatever it is. when people lust after. Viraga is ending of lusting after. After things, after money, after sex, after drug, after ego, after power, after whatever it might be that mind can be lusting after. And somehow or other, the scholars, not necessarily intentionally, of the last century who found a new language to translate, namely Pali and Sanskrit and things, translated it as detachment. Whereas the meaning of it is that a human being who is realized, who knows what freedom is, has ended lusting after anything. It's finished. And there's no whisper in that of detachment and coldness and indifference or or, all that. And so a feature of that is a genuine way of being in the world in which, through looking at subject and object relationship, self and other relationship, to see the value and the importance, as we were speaking about over the days, of non-attachment. And sometimes people say, I've oh, got to be attached, got to be attached. Got to be attached. I remember in Calcutta, I was a monk, shaved head, robes, carrying the six uh, items that we were permitted, spare set of robes, uh, the begging bowl and the razor. Had a meeting with a a Jesuit uh, priest who was in fact the confessor for uh, um, Mother Teresa. And he and I talked at length, having a a Catholic upbringing, about the, the different teachings. And the only abiding memory which I have as I, as I uh, left his room in the, the center of Calcutta was him shouting down the stairs to me as a kind of last, whatever, triumphant statement. And he shouted out, you've got to be attached to something in life. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, well, uh, (laughs) (laughs) so we beg to differ. (laughs) And so sometimes one must be attached to. The attachment aspect is the grasping, the holding and the clinging which takes place. And in the ending of attachment, it doesn't leave indifference and apathy and coldness and detachment. The ending of attachment and the holding releases love. It's the non-attachment and the non-holding to events of past, present and future which releases connectedness, which releases an understanding of what it means to be in this world and that we are all in it together. But when we're attached and we're holding on to whatever it might be, self or other, sometimes the attachment is so strong that nothing else can get in. We can't see, we can't hear, we can't feel, we can't connect, we can't realise, we can't understand, we, we, we can't uh, acknowledge, because we're blocked, the self is blocked in its attachment to something or things. And therefore it's an act of service to, to sentient life, for us to look at our attachments. And therefore that looking of the at the attachments there, looking really, and sometimes that means asking ourselves, have I genuinely made up my l- mind to live a life without attachments, without clinging? Have I genu- genuinely made that a priority? And if so, it does something to the subject-object dynamic. The sense about it, the feeling about the relationship of oneself in this world changes simply because the attachment has come out. It opens up something. We might call love, we might call awareness, we might call interconnectedness, we might call it understanding or whatever. In the text uh, uh, here, this is uh, uh, Eugene, one of the Spirit Rock uh, teachers. Now we were just talking a little uh, earlier on. And after we had spoken to, together, I uh, uh, thought arose uh, to um, uh, quote uh, a, li- a little bit. It's one of the passages which is very, very well known and very, very uh, well uh, uh, loved. And I'll just quote a little piece. Uh, basically, there was a, uh, a guy named Bahia who um, was determined to have a, a meeting uh, with the Buddha. And as was customary in India... At that time, uh, the homeless uh, men, men and women, they, they weren't actually called monks and nuns then, they were called bhikkhus. And the word bhikkhu means a beggar. The Buddha, the Buddha said, Those in the Dharma uh, be willing to be the lowest of the low. Yeah. It's all kind of teaching in humility, teaching in letting go, teaching in non attachment. So the beggars went off and begging round each morning, and uh, the Buddha. Uh, with them and those days they uh, lived on second hand clothes they didn't have all these fancy silky robes you painfully see them in today so anyway but he approached the Buddha uh, and something was really strongly pressing uh, on on his mind and to know what the essence of the Dharma was to really bring out the happiness what the essence of the Dharma to bring out the happiness and he kept leaning on, on the Buddha and As always, do it three or four times, and he caved in. So, and then he, this is a paraphrase of what I think happened. And, uh, (laughs) (laughs) so he said to Bahia, you should train yourself. It's a wonderful message and teaching for one and all. You should train yourself, he says. In the scene, there is simply the seeing. In the scene, there is what is seen. Not investing in it, not putting overlays on it. In the scene, there is just the scene. In the heard, there is just the heard. In the cognized, which is his sh- short form for saying, in what is smelt, in what is tasted. I and mean, in what is touched, there is just what is smelt, what is tasted, and what is touched. There is just that. In this way, train yourself. In the scene, there's just a scene. In the heard, there's just a heard. Or you could say in the seeing, there's just a seeing. In the hearing, there's just the hearing. In the smelling, there's just the smelling. Train yourself this way to see that clearly. And then he says, when you you understand this, you will not be with that. You will not be in that. So sometimes, when we forget that in the seeing, there's just a seeing, we get lost in it. We get caught up in it. We get called into it. We've all re- reported and spoken about this. And similarly with the other senses there. He said, you will not be with that. You are not with that. When you are not in that, you will not be here, c- caught up in it, in the situation. You will not be lost in that, nor in between the two. Sometimes we listen and say, what well, Hexy going on about. (laughs) Because he says at the very end, this extraordinary statement, this is the end of suffering. What's the sense? What's the the intimation? What's the, 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 the whisper for each one of us? If one looks at any level of suffering, of dukkha, of any level of it, it will either be upon the object around the object, around the self or the person, the issue, the personal story, or in the movement back and forth between one and the other, the suffering arising in that. Shall I or shan't I? Be connected with, be with, not be with. Stay in, Stay? get out of. All the sorts of areas of relationships and the vast meaning of it In work, out of work, in study, out of study, in relationship, out of relationship. So all that movement back and forth or somewhere in between. It's in this, only here, that dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness, can arise. You couldn't think. We couldn't think of something outside of it. Which either isn't involving the object, the subject, or the movement in between. In the seeing, there is just the seeing. In the hearing, there is just the hearing. In the cognizing, in the knowing, there is just just the knowing. And not being lost in that, not being pulled back from that, not here, nor there, nor in between, this is the end of suffering. And then he uh, continues and flows on with it. He says, Bahia understood this just listened to this. And he listened and he understood it. He listened and what? He listened and there was a knowing. Knowing the truth of this. And the knowing was so clear that it finished being caught up in the subject, being caught up in the objects and being caught up in what's going on between. He knew it. And in that knew it, knowing he was liberated. He was a free human human being. And then it said, and remember monks uh, and uh, the, mon- the monastery in southern Thailand so touched by this I think you can probably have a sense when you have two and a half thousand years which is a hundred generations or more of uh, men and women in, in the same tradition wearing the same, much the same robes etc when the stories get passed down it's like family it's like family and so the family of the monks and nuns go back all these generations and some monks I can feel it myself, the feelings, the, uh, the tears would come. Because immediately after the realization, uh, uh, Bahia was killed and by a, a, a buffalo. Still, these deaths, kinds of deaths still take place in Thailand and India as well, where a buffalo suddenly goes mad and tramples and kills somebody. And the Buddha then g- g- gives a verse, it's rather a, a, a lovely uh, 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 verse. And he spoke, and the Buddha spoke of the the, the significance of what was understood. And he just expands on the realization, the liberating realization of Bahiya. And he says, where neither water nor earth, nor fire nor air, gain a foothold on us, where neither water nor earth, no fire nor water, nor fire nor air gain a foothold. There gleam, no stars, no sun sheds light, there shines no moon, yet there's no darkness either. When a sage has come to know this remember the talk yesterday evening, when a sage has come to know this, for oneself, through one's experience, one is freed from form and formlessness, one is freed from being trapped in pleasure and pain. When one comes to know this, the elements of life have no foothold. The factors of life have no grip over. Because the grip is tied up with subject or object or somewhere in between. And the grip of it has gone. And in the the grip of it, one is free from form and formlessness, which is various manifestations of that movement. Sometimes we can be silent and still and clear enough and sometimes, as I said earlier, just the whisper. Sometimes in the moment we listen and sometimes we know in the moment nothing has a grip on us. Nothing has a grasp on us. Nothing has a hold over us. And we're not in this, lost in the subject, we're not lost in between, and we're not lost in the object. And that's the very intimation, the very whisper of a liberated understanding, a liberated knowing. So I don't think this teaching to uh, be is far removed from us. I don't think it's, oh, it's just the here and the wonderful... Uh, Presence of Siddhartha Gautama two and a half thousand years ago, or whatever, he says, let us train ourselves. That this is clear, clear. That the world of subject, the world of object, and in between is not a problem. In the knowing, finally, in the knowing that uh, arises, since the knowing and its steadiness, its seasoning, and the tradition. The Buddhist tradition has recognized the importance of stabilizing, of seasoning, of grounding in all of this. If the ego, the I, begins to grab that as the subject, identify with that as who I am, the knowing becomes corrupted. And the knowing then becomes the knower. And the clear confirmation of the knower is it sets up the duality I know, you don't know and the knowing gets infected with the I and it starts to make a hierarchy it starts to make I am better, it starts to make superiority feelings it starts to make conceit it starts to want attention, to look for worship to become and what happens? Self importance starts to arise. Therefore, the vigilance of in the, in the knowing that it being steady and, and clear and quietly present in our uh, life without it in any way becoming corrupted with the eye wrapping itself and becoming the knower. And we've seen uh, immense problems of all of that in spirituality. In this, during uh, the days, uh, just to um, conclude uh, here with you, uh, in talking to uh, Jimmy today, uh, Jimmy has uh, uh, kindly uh, uh, written um, on a card, and it's an expression of uh, appreciation and uh, gratitude to uh, uh, all of you here. So I said it would be a joy to read it uh, uh, t- to you this evening and uh, he just uh, showed it uh, uh, to me I haven't actually uh, uh, read, read it myself but I, I assume it's an appreciation <laughs> 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 Thank you Jimmy <laughs> I should have read it first, <laughs> read it first. <laughs> Okay, wonderful How can I possibly find the words to express this awesome gratitude? This mysterious natural dignity that refreshes my being and e and easily is all that is all that is for this one. From the Heart Sutra to here, two and a half thousand years later. My heart has nerves so been touched by this vast and timeless Effort of the down-to-earth, this unbelievably kind lineage, from Siddhartha Buddha to you. Accept through, please accept these words on this card. Um, I want to specifically acknowledge Christopher Sharda, Andrew, uh, the staff, uh, the cooks. I tasted love in the food. Uh, my dear friend for life, Lisa McCool, and the sangha here during this retreat. I've never felt more supported and revitalized by any Sangha. I do not just say this. I truly mean it from the innermost regions of my heart. And people, I won't mention all of the names, they know who you are. And every morning they have driven me to get my medicine so I would be able to do the retreat. Um, ice packs, food, people helping to guide me without ever having to ask. In truly what has Time's been my darkest hour, the light of your love and endless compassion has shown has shown me without doubt. There truly is a light at the end of the tunnel. And as Jimmy said earlier, he said, there truly is a light at the end of the tunnel, and I know there's not a train coming through it. <laughs> <laughs> And this time I'm 108%, 108% means infinity in the Dharma. This time I'm 108% sure it is not an oncoming train. It is truly uh, Yusudhata with mysteriously illuminating touch of wisdom and compassion and love. It's the Dharma uh, of the Dharma. And to all of you, and all of the two and a half thousand years, my thanks and gratitude. Really, Thank you, Jimmy. Just beautiful, just magnificent. Absolutely. And to thank everybody as well for the countless uh, uh, kindnesses and gestures of support which have been given to many, many people uh, here and also for the uh, true heartfelt uh, words of uh, Jimmy. It's a privilege to uh, uh, bring our first uh, retreat for us. Uh, At Spirit Rock to a close on this particular point. May all beings live with love. May all beings live with compassion. May all beings live a truly knowing life. Let's have a quiet minute or two together, shall we please?